0: Hey guys, Dane here with The Darkroom Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. In today's episode, we get to chat with one of the best film directors in the industry, Mr. David Gelb. In 2011, David got a camera and a translator and flew all the way to Tokyo to make his first documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where he documents the greatest sushi chef in the world, Jiro Ono, in his 10-seat restaurant in a subway station where he spent the next month documenting Jiro his life and later coming out with a documentary that would shape his style and change the food documentary world as we know it. It really gave insight on his life, his past, you know, his legacy, and it kind of changed how people would experience this type of filmmaking, you know, forever. And then, you know, the follow-up of this was David's uh, creation of Chef's Table, which, you know, takes that and it takes that formula and it, you know, puts it into the series where he went out and he documented some of the most incredible chefs in the world, whether they're the most decorated or, you know, they aren't very well known, but but their story is just so big and impactful and, and needs to be told. And David found a way to to make that a zone, but also to, to package it in a way that's just cinematically unbelievable. But the story is just as amazing. I have been so inspired by Chef's Table and, you know, even through through Jiro Dreams of Sushi um, by David's work and now with street food, which is on Netflix. But yeah, David is one of the most incredible and innovative film directors of right now and for a long time to come. And I really hope that you guys enjoy this and I hope you guys enjoy his work. But uh, yeah, so without further ado, you guys, here is an incredible conversation with David Gill. Welcome to the Dark Room Podcast, where you'll get to hear from the best full-time creators on the planet. From starting out to where they are now and everywhere in between. Welcome to The dark room, David Gelb. Uh, first off, thank you very much for doing this. I am legitimately like such a big fan of yours. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Jiro uh, and I don't know, there's something about it. Like, so I'm, I'm a big documentary fan. And when that came out, I mean, obviously the style that came from that kind of morphed into Chef's Table, but it hadn't been done as you knew, because when you first, sure, you know, we're, we're thinking about it, you went in and you wanted to just change how, uh, these documentaries were done. And you did that in a way that like inspired the hell out of me, um, to make mini docs. And to this day, like I still, you know, do mini docs on my own. Like I'm sure you did back in the day by yourself, uh, and do every aspect of it. But like what you did is, is, you know, although you made it seem like, uh, it was almost a, a level that you had to get to with big crews and with big uh, productions and things like that. You made it feel attainable in a way that, like, all you got to do is go out there and like get a camera and get the equipment, and like you can do this yourself. You know, it's so, like you really inspired me. But I'm sure you've inspired so many people to to you know do this and just try things and just get out there. So thank you for that. And well, thank, thank you for coming on.
1: <laughs> thank you for the introduction. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, man. Thank I just want really to say, appreciate like, it.
0: I'm really coming from a point of like being a big fan. So like to talk to you is is really really cool. Um, so before I get into like Chef's Table. And all these things that you've done, I would love to talk about high school mm. and about before college because mm-hmm. I know you went to s c right um but before we get into that world, I kind of want to know where like this all kind of started coming from like what was the David Gelb of high school and, and before like mm. who was that guy
1: oh man well, you know i um i actually I, I was i was I was really into theater you know for a long time yeah. and um and I think that some of the, the influences that kind of came together, just like I, I love theater. I loved um, drama. I, you know, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I love music. My dad, um, for a long time, ran the Sony Classical music label and before that he was like a music manager and and filmmaker and so he would manage classical musicians and make films about them and do these like live broadcast kind of shows and stuff and so just like i was and i had a little video camera when i was a kid so you know i I was fortunate in that i had you know i had i went to a good uh high school where they had various like kind of little filmy kind of programs and stuff like we had like a film club there and i was doing this theater stuff and um my friend, uh, Josh Safdie, was one of my best friends in high school, He uh, and he's a director. He and his brother directed, the re- most recently, this awesome movie, Good Time, and they have a movie called uh, Uncut Gems um, cool. coming out. Um, I'm not sure how soon, but it's with A24. And, oh, nice. Huge. Um, uh, Adam Sandler stars in, in a dramatic role. Oh, and, wow. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be this incredible. I'm so excited to see it. Nice. Um, but Josh and I, um, we were buddies, and we um, he had an iMac. Yeah. And it, it was a very lucky time because the technology to shoot and edit something yourself without having to, you know, be a professional or be an assistant to... It like just started
0: happening then, yeah. You were able
1: to just do it at home. Right. And so there was this kind of, like, prosumer movement beginning to happen. Yeah. Where you know, you were able to connect, shoot something on mini DV or mm-hmm. whatever. You connect it to your computer with Firewire. And then with iMovie, you could do, very easily do kind of like non-linear editing. You know, you had your dissolves and effects and it was easy to put music on it. And, yeah. stuff. and so Josh and I, we were watching Amores Peros, um, great movie by uh, Ineritu, like early film, one of the, probably his breakthrough, breakout movies. Oh, okay. um, Really good movie, Amores yeah. Peros. I guess it translates to love's a bitch. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> then... Um, and, uh, you know, it's, like, that movie and uh, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and Amelie. And so we were watching these, like, kind of, like, indie movies that were all, like, technically, like, really interesting as well. And just, like, imitating them. So Josh and I would make our own versions of these things. And then we made a short film um, called Lethargy, which was, like, 25 minutes and not about a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. But, uh... It was uh you know our first attempt at like making a film and yeah, we got yeah. into a couple small film festivals. That was
0: in 2002, right?
1: Uh yes, so yeah, that was like yeah. a senior year of high school and I acted in that but I was like transition. I was realizing you know I'm much more interested in filmmaking yeah. than acting. And and um
0: What made then, you what made you feel like that?
1: I just uh I just felt much more at ease behind the camera, right. and then even when we were shooting, I was so distracted, I couldn't like get into a moment in, in the way that a that a real actor does. Yeah, and um, so it was just like I just uh, I, I prefer to shoot the stuff, and so then uh, that was pretty much it. And then and then we I really wanted to go to film school. Was very fortunate to be able to get into NYU and USC. Chose uh, USC because I was obsessed with like Star Wars and um, you know Spielberg movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you know at the time. And maybe, I don't know if this is true today, but it was like, New York is like the Scorsese school and then, you know, kind of more gritty, like indie stuff. Right. And then S. C. Spielberg. SC is like, you know, the big, you know, mm-hmm. dinosaur movies and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, definitely. And so I just, you know, was like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. And I also it was part of like, oh, I want to tr- go to Hollywood and like, yeah, go to Los Angeles, you know, because <laughs> like that's, a, that's a big is.
0: move, you know, moving yeah. all the way, literally across yeah. the country to, to do this
1: and just trying right? something completely new. Yeah. And, uh, so that's kind of how I, I made the choice and I, I was very lucky to be able to have that choice. And then, um, I kind of met this crew, um, of people in, at USC, my, my good friends who I met in various like film classes. And, uh, once I had that team together, you know, we were like making a lot of stuff and we were working on music videos and things like that, like kind of extracurricularly. Yeah.
0: Outside of school.
1: Yeah. And then, um, so that was the greatest thing about being in film school. There's a class... The two things were... There was a class where you have to make five films, um, one film every two weeks, mm-hmm. and then you present it in front of the whole class. And okay. so this kind of, like, crash course in filmmaking... Yeah, that's was a like, lot. really, really good because you're able to immediately make something and then you see how your class is, like, reacting yeah, to it. Yeah, so and that's, like,
0: like, a four-month class. So you're doing, like... Yeah. You know, a good amount. Yeah, and yeah. so...
1: There's so much of, of filmmaking is, like, okay, I have something I want to say... Yeah. And then getting the skill and practice to be able to make something that actually says what you wanted it to say. Right. And so that trial and error process, uh, film school was a really great place for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, over the summers, I was shooting behind the scenes, like kind of like videos and stuff like that. For for, work, yeah. For movies, for, um, and again, I'm a very lucky person. So my dad was able to connect me at studios and stuff and be Mm -hmm. able to get me these like little behind the scenes assistant jobs. Um, and so that's kind of how I fell into documentary was that I was able to be this one man band mm-hmm. um, and then I was able to work on larger projects with my friends, um, music videos and, and whatnot. There was a guy uh, named Ace Norton who's a very successful music video and commercial director. Um, who's still working today and he kind of gave a lot of my friends and I our first shot. And, um, you know, so I was I would be a first AD for him. Um, Brandon Driscoll Luthringer would become the, uh, who became the editor of, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi and is like a fantastic editor. He would edit these music videos for him. Hiro Mirai, um, uh, would shoot them, uh, sometimes with Steve Dreipolcher, who unfortunately passed away, but was an incredible talent. And, you know, here, Mariah, who's today is, you know, does Atlanta and some mm-hmm. of the best, you know, the, this is America yeah. video. And he yeah. you was know, one of the best music video directors working, um, and just directors and one of the best directors in general. Working. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we were just like lucky to have this like group of friends and, uh, coming out of college, we were doing these music videos and things, but I always had this idea that I wanted to make this, uh, something that brought, like the high end production values that I was seeing in scripted movies that I was seeing in, uh, the films of Errol Morris, which mm-hmm. were some of the first documentaries that I saw. I was like, wow, these feel like movies, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like the thin blue line is like, it's like a mystery and it has incredible music and the cinematography is amazing. And same with, um, the fog of war and then planet earth was bringing like incredible production values to, yeah documentary. Yeah. Things we hadn't seen yeah. up until then. And, uh, at, at this time we were, you know, cause I was mentioned before about how the technology, this prosumer movement was happening. Mm-hmm. And so we were really in the right place at the right time to be able to have com- and, and be able to be lucky enough to have computers and cameras. Um, I, uh, started getting into this, finding out about this red camera. So the, the red was like the first digital camera that really looked like a film camera yeah
0: and it know. looked i mean it still looks it has great the high yeah. res- it
1: had the high resolution and you know there are many more versions of red but for we're sure talking about the very first red um peter jackson had shot a short like world war one film and so a bunch of my friends and i we all went to the consumer electronics show in vegas just to see this camera uh and so we watched uh the screening in 4k of peter jackson's short film uh-huh. and it was just like amazing and this camera could shoot slow motion you could use All cinema lenses on it You know, it had a PL mount But you could also use uh, Still camera lenses Whatever lenses you could get You could put it on this thing And it really looked like a movie And so that's where this idea came Where it's like Oh, you can make A super high-end looking Digital film But make it look like You make it look like it's a movie um, Without a lot of crew Or with no crew Yeah, you yeah Um, And uh, that was kind of like Where the beginnings of Jiro Dreams of Sushi And the production methodology started was like, you know, I can just go to Japan with this camera, I can use these, um, Canon lenses that like look beautiful. Um, and you know, I can shoot in slow motion with it. I can, um, you know, they're a little, I, 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 I would Velcro on like attachments to the camera and kind of turn into this like one man show kind yeah, of camera. Um, and, uh, and you can just make a movie with that and then you can edit and finish it on your Mac pro computer. And so, It it really provided this shortcut because before that, it was more of an apprenticeship system where if you wanted to learn how to edit or you wanted to – you had to be an editing assistant and you would do all your work as an editing assistant in the day and then at night, you'd be able to get access to the terminal or whatever. Or if you wanted to be a cinematographer, you you really had to be on a camera crew – and then, you know, you work your way up to operator and et cetera, and then you're finally able to get your hands on this camera and oh, yeah. be able to use it. But these consumer, these prosumer cameras were coming out and it was just like, wow, like you're able to really learn and practice without having to um, do the day job part of it. And so that was uh, a really fortunate kind of moment. And it, it, it allowed myself, and I think this really helped uh, Hero a lot and, and some of the other filmmakers of our Era being able—that's why you have like a lot of younger people making really cool-looking movies. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because of the availability of this technology. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So in this early process of planning out uh, Hiro and knowing that you wanted to go document him, were there any other ideas? Like, I mean, Japan is such a different world away, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you know you're out here and like like what was the connection to that? Like, what was what was the thought process behind the
1: the first idea was Planet Earth of food. Yeah, okay. And that was going to be like a giant epic doc mm-hmm. series Yeah, um, that was going to be like Planet Earth, but focusing on, you know, food and chefs and farmers and, right. and, and, and that kind of thing. And um, I narrowed it down to my favorite food, sushi. And I've always been obsessed with sushi. My parents took me to Japan when I was young. My dad, I mentioned before, my dad worked for Sony. Um, and so... I always got a kick out of being like the first in my like group of friends to have like tried sushi, yeah, or like to bring yeah. back like even this is going back to like second grade, first grade. I'm bringing back action figures, Power Ranger you're action Japan figures Japan that nobody like knew about. Nine, yeah, so I felt yeah, like I was yeah. on kind of the cutting edge of things and. I always loved sushi, but I noticed just how, you know, everybody in the U.S. at this time, like, people were aware of sushi. They loved sushi. Mm-hmm. Sushi was, like, a normal, ubiquitous kind of food. But it was all Philadelphia rolls covered in, like, you oh, know, spicy sure. sauce yep. or whatever. And there was Vegas nothing, rolls,
0: California rolls, Yeah, nobody rolls, knew all that. what
1: traditional sushi was. Right. And so, uh, I, so I was like, oh, and I'll also teach people about, like, what real sushi is mm-hmm. through this thing. Yeah. And sushi is so misunderstood. And so— The goal was to shoot five or six different sushi chefs all with different styles around the world and kind of like weave that together into one film. But um, I was making – so I was making little shorts and demos and things like that and trying to like develop the style. And the style of it was coming along, but it just – I couldn't sustain the film because I realized I needed like a human story to carry me through. And that's where we really settled and, and, and zeroed in on Jiro Ono who has an incredible family story. The dynamic between him and his son, his son is like 50 and still working for his dad at the restaurant. And I was just like, wow, there's like there must be a real story here. Like this is really interesting. And, uh, then we just realized that through telling the story of the human journey of Jiro, making it character focused and not informationally focused, Mm -hmm. Whatever information we want to convey about sushi, we can, but people will care because of the emotional context Yeah, there's of something the attached to it. Yes. Yeah. And so it became not sushi movie, it became uh, you know, Jiro dreams of sushi. It became about a person. And um, that was a huge breakthrough. And that's what led to, you know, what Chef's Table is today. Yeah. And, and street food as well.
0: How do you, you know, how do you get the um the trust from from someone like that, from Jiro when you're gonna go out there and you're gonna, you know go out there for I'm sure at least 2 to 3 weeks and totally like invade his space in a way. Um you know where where does that trust come from and like what are those conversations early on look like?
1: It's um it's about having a great uh guide and yeah. like an access point. And so in this case I had uh Masohiro Yamamoto who I met through my dad's Japanese translator. So my dad today um runs the Metropolitan Opera right. in Japan. He's been doing that for the last um 13 or 14 years
0: Okay, wow And
1: so uh, He connected me To Through his translator To Masuhiro Yamamoto Who's like The food guy in Tokyo Yeah He is He's written books on it He knows everything And so He was gonna be my guide To um, The sushi chefs of Tokyo And so he brought me to Jiro He convinced Jiro to be in the film, essentially, by saying, you know, his dad runs the opera house, and they're very big in Dynasty, and you can tell from the film, they're big on, like, dynastic succession and stuff right. like that. yeah, yeah. And so I had, and again, you know, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a lucky person. I had the gear, I got to go to, you know, the best film school, um, I was able to travel to Japan when I was younger and, like, build this affinity. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 now I had uh, my dad's legacy giving me credibility and validation with this guy who is, you know, in his 80s and is the best in his field and um, is looking at this American kid across the table mm-hmm. being like, really, you know, yeah. is, is that, <laughs> how is this like, okay, so his dad is somebody Well, and you're 27 important? at the
0: time too, right? Yeah, yeah. And,
1: um, but Yamamoto uh, really, vou- Yamamoto-san really vouched for me and, um, you know, made the promise to Jiro is that he'll be the only chef in the movie. It'll be a, a, an opportunity to present his legacy Um, to his family and his kids and everything and also to um, clarify what sushi is to the world because sushi is like very misunderstood as you mentioned the Vegas rolls and these things um, are not what you know sushi is about yeah definitely you know um, so he took a chance on me um, and you know we agreed we would shoot four weeks um, and I would just shadow them and I would try to stay out of their way um, but it became like they kind of like took me in, and I think yeah. part of it they were like, you know, they could tell I was kind of in over my head. You know, it was just myself and a translator. Mm-hmm. I was operating sound, camera, directing. They like pretty much doing everything. Unreal. There were, there myself, were two people. So it was just you, myself but... and a translator. Okay, so that's it. And that's it. Wow. And um, so they really were trying to help me out. And I remember there was this time when we were shooting the octopus. Uh, he was massaging the octopus it became this famous scene and he massages the octopus for 45 minutes you know The Apprentice does and that's how they get it to be tender and so I'm filming this octopus and we're just shooting it for the full 45 minutes and yeah. getting all the different coverage and angles and everything and Jiro leans in and then through the translator he's like are you sure you want to be doing this because I think you're making the most boring film of all time
0: Yeah.
1: and uh <laughs>
0: Like, I'm only gonna use 10 seconds I was door. like no no no, no yeah. this
1: is fascinating and right. so they really stepped it up and like were trying to like make sure that I got glimpses of all the elements of there, right um Practice. They were letting me use their locker room to like store gear and stuff. Um, you know, we did this great scene where we traveled up to visit Jiro's um, family, or, or not his family, but his uh, the grave of his family and um, some of his childhood friends and stuff, which is like really like fun scene that kind of opens the movie up a lot. Um, and so he and his son Yoshikazu and their whole crew, we all kind of became this like crew together. Cool. Yeah. And that trust it comes from. I didn't sit there and tell him what his life story is. I came in there being like, I want to learn. You know, I Mm want to just let me into your world and just show me. And I think that he found that refreshing because a lot of journalists, uh, come, came into him. And this is what was described to me by Yamamoto-san is that journalists, they come in and they have their agenda, you know, they're making it about sustainability or they're making it about, you know, they have
0: their, their bullet points. They have their thing that they want to
1: hit and they're trying to guide him to those points. Right. And, um, my approach was, you know, I'm a blank slate and just teach me. Yeah. And so when you come in with a real sense of humility and respect, um it it makes them open up and and then you know we just kind of became this team
0: yeah and i feel like that's what you've really um brought to chef's table too is you you get things out of these people that a reporter wouldn't necessarily get or or you know an interview wouldn't necessarily get like you have a a pretty strong talent it seems in like really getting to the core of people and maybe even you know them being surprised by how much information they give you about like their lives and their story and things like that mm-hmm. did that kind of come from getting comfortable with Jiro and like kind of learning how to talk to somebody like that?
1: Yeah. Well, it's that, and then you know, I had done um, you know hour long. I had done like hour long behind the scenes projects before, working with um, uh, on the on the on the, this film *Blindness* by Fernando Morels, mm-hmm. and I got to be on set for like ninety days, and I kind of learned how to how you to interview celebrities, how to interview people like Julianne Moore and um, Gael Garcia Bernal, Danny Glover, and I kind of learned how to speak to, and I and again, you know, this comes from uh, I have some experience in it, just like growing up as my dad's son and, and, and being around, you know, famous opera singers or, you know, artists and stuff like that. There's a certain like deference, um, but, but still keeping it comfortable. And, um, so I, I had a knack for that. And, um, I would say that just approaching with humility, respect and research is very important and showing that, you know, I've done like the cursory more than the cursory reach like i i i really kind of like knew my stuff about sushi but i wasn't imposing my knowledge but he could tell that i had a real love for it yeah yeah um i think the other thing is that they could tell that i loved to eat yeah and that was they they appreciated that yeah. um that you know i loved sushi i loved all the different types of japanese food and we would go out and have meals all the time and then when it comes to chef's table we 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 take the same approach and what was different, you know, I think that some of these chefs have, have done long magazine features, and mm-hmm. I would say our interview style is more akin to that, where you're talking for a long period of time. Right.
0: Like, I've heard you say four to five days yeah. sometimes. Yeah, four to five. Well, yeah. yeah.
1: I, mean, I mean, we shoot for 10 days. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the chefs were used to before, if they had been filmed for television, they're spending, you know, three hours with, you know, Bourdain in the afternoon or yeah. something like that. And they're just a segment of a show. Um we're asking for a full, like, 10-day shooting commitment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have to tell us their deepest, darkest secrets and life story and everything. And the process for that is really, you know, you come in with respect, you've done your research, and then you do long, long interviews. And then over time, the camera melts away. Their standard talking points that they give to interviewers kinds of melts away. And then you're Mm -hmm. just having, like, a real conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Bourdain, because today's his birthday. Right. Yeah. Um, so it yeah, it's you know, it's such a man, it's a rough thing because I was such a, you know, gigantic fan, still am like oh, yeah. Kitchen Confidential, like really changed the way that I look at at travel and food and, and you know, the chef scene. Mm. Um, but yeah. for you, like did he inspire these uh, these interview styles that, that he's done, and, like, th- did he really inspire, like, the way that you look at maybe even travel or just sure. a travel show in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a, a, a massive uh, influence, and um, I would say that what Bourdain does that was so fascinating was he goes beyond just the cooking, and he makes it about the characters, he makes it about the culture, and um, he has a real sense of, like, you know, kind of, like, social justice... Um and so he you know, he would make the world kind of like a smaller, feel like a smaller place, like right. a more intimate place. Yeah. And just showing how even, you know, like whether you're in the Philippines or, you know, I mean, he went all over the world, obviously. Um, wherever you are, we're not that different. You know, all humans, we're all the same
0: people. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I think that was really beautiful. And so, you know, I'd always been an enormous fan of his. Um, he really helped a lot with get helping Jiro dreams of sushi actually get really mainstream traction, and you know he, uh, you know we sh- we shared the film with him early. Um, you know he had been he is a fan of Jiro. You know he's quoted as saying that that would be his last meal is a meal at um, at Tsukibashi Jiro. He uh, really um, he tweeted about it. You know he advocated for it. We did a screening together at the uh, South Beach Wine and Food Festival. Nice, and he gave me a huge amount of confidence. And, you know, I'm so grateful to him. And yeah, I mean, without him, I doubt that Chef's Table would exist. And street food is very much, it's almost like an homage to Yeah, it really captures you know? that energy. Because, uh, you know, our style is, we, the, the host is invisible and the chef tells their own story. But the the types of stories and the places that we're going in street food mm-hmm. feel very, um, you know, very parts unknown to me, very no reservations to yeah. me. And, you know, that's not by accident.
0: Yeah, when I've heard you say that, you know, that kind of came from you guys being in those locations Mm -hmm. for shooting Mm -hmm. and really wanting to dive into that culture. So it sounds Mm -hmm. like, you know, you guys really wanted to, to show that like when it comes to street food, um, how how have you guys found the the people that you've been, you know, working with there like interview wise and just, just getting to know these stories? Because, you know, it's not easy to find, I'm sure, some of these these people that you know have been working for, you know, 50 years themselves, but yeah. their family's been doing it for a hundred. Sure. You know?
1: Yeah, the casting process in street food was uh, significantly more challenging yeah. than on Chef's Table. Um, you know, on Chef's Table, most of the chefs have been written about to some extent, uh-huh. which gives us some background. Um, a lot fewer articles are being written about specific street food vendors, and you know the the most famous ones in the in the uh, in the series probably are you know Jay Fi, um, who's the you know the only street food vendor to ever win a Michelin star, um, and uh, Toyo, you know who is, is, is not nearly as famous as oh, Jay yeah. Fi, I don't think, I but you Toy know Elf. he's got a very unique kind of style with yeah. his you know blow torches and his sense of humor and everything. Yeah. Um, but you know. The hard, you know, on for Chef's Table, once we had, the first season had come out and people really understood what the show was mm-hmm. and, and the benefit that chefs can receive from having this platform to be able to tell their stories um, to Netflix's huge audience, yeah. 190 countries. Huge, You're yeah. coming out all at the same time and it's translated into everybody's language and so everybody's watching you around the world. Chefs really wanted to be on Chef's Table. In the case of Street Food, they're not trying like a lot of these uh, street food vendors, they're not trying to be famous. Yeah. They're just trying to like live their lives. Oh, exactly. You know, they're yeah. doing their, they're doing their work every day. They don't want additional attention. They don't want attention from the tax man or the local authorities or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they just want to do their thing. And so, um, the promise of fame and glory is a lot less interesting to them. So it was harder to cast. And, uh, but we were able to find, um, chefs who did want to share their story. Um, that, uh, have a point of view and a perspective and, um, or they're proud of their, you know, ancestral, uh, kind of, you know, knowledge that came from their parents and their grandparents. And as you said, they've been doing the same kind of dish for like hundreds or 50 years or 60 years, however long. And so we were able to find some really interesting people, but it really required actually being on the ground. And we have a, a phenomenally talented team working on street food that come, they come from chef's table. So we were able to move a whole bunch of other, a whole bunch of our chef's table crew give them a chance to really shine on street food and yeah. so you know our story producers um to daniel milder and uh and Tamara rosenfeld are both story producers on chef's table uh and they get to move up to be directors on street food we have um people who were editing assistants on chef's table who are now editors on street food oh, and we have cool. people yeah. who are like um alex paul one of our uh cinematographers on street food was a, a camera assistant on like 15 to 20 chef's table episodes. Oh no way. Yeah. And um and then we were able to bring producers over from Chef's Table as well. And it gives uh it, it was really great cuz it gave um our crew a chance to grow. Yeah, it's huge and to shine and they've revealed uh in- an incredible amount of talent. And it's a much harder shoot to do street food. So going back to what I was saying about the casting, our st- uh our directors uh Tamara and Daniel are producers and uh some of our other, you know, advanced crew would go down on the ground, meet with the local kind of food experts and, like, tour guide. You know, every city has its own kind of Yamamoto, you know, where somebody who really knows the food in that area. For sure. And they, they're, like, the experts. Yeah. Um,
0: and that's who Bourdain would usually talk to yes, when he went out there. exactly. Yeah. And
1: mm-hmm. so they helped us find the street food vendors and gotcha. helped us get in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, we would pre-interview them and then decide, you know, who we want to make the, the show about. Yeah. And then also just the conditions are, like, insane out there. I mean, it, it, we were shooting in the middle of the summer, monsoon season, it's hot, yeah. it's humid. So many There's aspects, no air conditioning. Yeah. There's no control over the environments. We, it isn't like we have a nice big restaurant that we're able to set up interviews in, you know, yeah. so we're scrambling looking for interview locations that are quiet enough. So I'm just incredibly proud of what they've achieved. Yeah. And uh yeah. So yeah. I mean, yeah it's great. I mean like
0: you know documentary filmmaking is reacting to to what's around you really at all times. So I feel like street food, like if you can get past that, like that's got to be one of the hardest like, reaction settings to, to deal with? Were there any, like, certain situations in street food that either got, you know, kind of sketchy or kind of just, you know, really hard to to deal with yeah. and manage?
1: The hardest thing about it is the schedule. Yeah. Street food vendors are often waking up at 2, 3 in the morning. Right. Hitting the night market. Yeah. Getting their ingredients. Get everything, getting everything ready. So the first kind of, like, workers of the day waking up, going to work at, like, 5, 6 in the, at 6 in the morning... Mm-hmm the The vendors are ready to go and start serving everybody breakfast. Yeah, and you guys got to be so our crew radio. is up at two in the morning. I mean, the hours are crazy. Yeah, and they're doing for sure. this for weeks and weeks. Um, mm-hmm. and again, there's the no AC, and we're bringing in the full cinematic arsenal of chef's table, so we're not cutting mm-hmm. any corners, uh, gear wise. So we're bringing in the big cameras, we're bringing in the big lenses, and um, I would say that that is the hardest part is ma- maintaining the level of quality, um in the breaknecks schedule and like, The sleep and it just basically nobody just nobody adjusts to their jet lag, right? And that's part of the strategy of it, yeah. But man, it's exhausting.
0: Uh, We're in your studio right now, or we're at your place.
1: Yes, yeah, yes. So we are at um, we're inside a a building called Sim International. Uh, It it, we have my production company Supper Club Mm -hmm. um, occupies like a wing in the building. Yeah, Um, this is a a new production company that I've started with uh, Brian McGinn, who is a longtime collaborator of mine on Chef's Table. Um, You know, the two of us. Kind of we, we control all the casting and the, the main creative decisions on Chef's table and yeah. kind of run the show together. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, teamed up with a very talented producer uh, named Jason Sturman. Who uh, has worked on you know many documentaries that we admire quite a bit, yeah. but documentaries that are quite different from the ones that I've done. So Jason's does a lot. Jason's work involves a lot of kind of more political or activist kind of documentaries. He worked on uh, Five Came Back, which was on Netflix, which is a uh, I don't know if you've heard of that no, series, not, but no. it's basically about um, five major American directors who. Um, worked as uh, propaganda filmist uh, sorry propaganda filmmakers for the Allies oh wow and um you know and, and these are some of the biggest uh directors and then we also and, and then in that documentary the interviews are with Guillermo del Toro and Steven Spielberg right. and they're like incredible filmmakers yeah I think about, I saw
0: billboards for that for yeah. sure
1: yeah um you know he's he did Icarus he did um uh uh Ava uh Duvernay's uh thirteenth.
0: Thirteenth, yeah. Um
1: okay. and uh Winter on Fire about the Ukrainian Revolution and um, you know, all these like very cool films. And then Brian, apart, separate from doing Chef's Table with me, went off and did the Amanda Knox documentary on right. Netflix, which okay. was a big deal. And so uh the three of us teamed up, started this company.
0: Yeah.
1: Um we have a bunch of shows in production. We have this deal with Disney now yeah, where Disney we're making Plus, right? yeah. yes for Disney Plus, yeah. we're making uh Documentary series and features um, inspired by the various like Disney properties. So we're in the middle of production on our Marvel Comics docu series, mm-hmm. yeah, and we're developing stuff for all the other Disney uh, properties as well, which is yeah. a lot of fun. So you know, one day we're visiting Pixar, another day we're v- visiting Disney Animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you get, get to be a kid Lucas again. Film. Yeah. yeah, it's it's tremendous. And you know, going back, remember I chose USC because I wanted mm-hmm. to work on yeah, that, Star Wars kind of that. stuff, and yeah. so I found a different route. Yeah, I found a different route to get there. Um, and, and it's great. And then we also have a show that we're really excited about, um, called earth keepers, which is not based on a Disney, uh, property, but will be released on Disney plus. And it's like, imagine planet earth, but each episode focuses on, on an environmentalist or conservationist trying to protect a specific species. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, so it's like planet earth meets chef's table. in this very pure kind of way. Um, And we're incredibly excited about that, too. So we're getting to do all kinds of stuff. And then we're also dabbling into scripted stuff as well. You know, I did a feature film a few years ago um, called The Lazarus Effect with uh, Donald Glover and Mark Duplass and Olivia Wilde, um, which was a lot of fun and and, and a great learning experience for me. And so now, you know, we have a project. I have a feature film set up at uh, Fox Searchlight that we are um, working on writing right now. And we're – uh, working on various other scripted projects as well. Yeah, and then
0: you did that uh, the documentary for for Mustang, right? For, That's for right, Mustang. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, and that was a that was actually uh, an incredible challenge because you know as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. you know the, my my work is like the breakthrough was making it about a character. Right. So how do you make a movie like, yeah. about a car? Exactly. And yeah. uh, you know we really made it about so we made it about kind of two visionaries of the Ford Motor Company, one being Lee Iacocca, mm-hmm. who was the known as the father of the Mustang you know and he made this car with no idea if it was going to work or not there was no research about it there was nothing and he was just like if i can make a car that looks like an italian sports car but is priced like a normal american car like they will come yeah. and they did yeah and uh so that was like a really uh, a great story of of cutting through corporate bureaucracy and taking a big risk and then that story parallels with uh dave parasak who was the chief engineer of the 2015 Rebuild and his story is about how do you remake something that is beloved bringing it in, into the future and, and attracting new fans of it while not alienating your core fan. Base. Yeah.
0: Which is a huge, which huge, huge diehard fan base. And then yeah. spending
1: some time in, uh, recently in Lucasfilm and in, um, you know, the, uh, other kind of the, the Marvel and everything like that. You mm-hmm. know, they deal with that same kind of thing all the time. Definitely. It's like, how do I bring it into the future and not alienate the hardcore fanboys?
0: Right. Cause they'll get called out. I don't know if anybody's seconds. has yeah.
1: really figured out the solution. So we're like, they're just trying to make great movies. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. the best that anyone can do. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been you know being able to work on a bunch of different eclectic projects and it, it's been awesome. And uh, we're re- I'm really lucky just to have this incredible team, you know, at, at Supper Club. You know, we have um, two, uh, we have a, a number of shows in production right now, and we're just getting to bring in just awesome people and really seeing how they are able to shine and stuff. And yeah. uh, it's great. So we love it.
0: Before you know, before the team, and and I'm sure that when Chef's Table first came out, you know. I don't know if this team was fully assembled yet or if you were still, you know, getting pieces together. Mm. Um, but in this time period between, you know, 2011, 2015, uh, there was about, like, a four-year, you know, break where I'm sure you were developing Chef's Table, but you mm-hmm. were also developing The Lazarus Effect. Right. Yeah, so, so I mean, what what kind of switches in your brain did you have to turn on and off to go between working on this documentary to yeah. working on, you know, this feature?
1: Yeah. I mean, that was the toughest transition is going from working on something entirely on your own, almost entirely on your own. I mean, the, the final crew on *Jiro James of Sushi is probably five people. Yeah. That's great. You know, it's like, you know, just the two of us, me and the translator, uh, uh, Shino, uh, Monobe in uh, Japan, just the two of us. And then we had, uh, Brandon Driscoll-Lutringer editing, Um, I had Tom Pellegrini, Matt Weaver, and Kevin Iwashina helping raise money and produce it at home after I was, you know, halfway through with the movie, I brought them on and they helped me raise the money to finish the rest of it. And then we had, um, we, oh yeah, Brandon and I colored it ourselves, and um and then we did a sound mix uh with Tim Hoganacker and that's it. Like that's the crew of the movie. Um and then a lot of favors came in with music, you know, and and, and stuff like that, you know, just begging people on Twitter basically, please yeah. give me your music. So switching from that tiny crew to a much larger project, because all these things were bigger, you know. Um, Lazarus Effect um is a it's a feature, you know, it's a big feature film, yeah, you know, huge. It's a studio movie. Yeah. Uh and uh so it was a big crew mm-hmm. and it required a lot more communication and also just like letting go of certain things. And it, it's, it's hard to do that and you have to do it in the right way and you have to trust the right people. And it's, uh, it's tough. So build allowing myself to trust other people to yeah. do things was the hardest part of it. And, um, that was really true on chef's table because, you know, it was easier for me to let things go on Lazarus effect because I'm not, you know, it's my first feature film. And mm-hmm. so it's like easier for me to trust other people. It's like, okay, you tell me how, it's yeah.
0: done. how were you approached for that? Oh, I, Lazzard's? um,
1: I, I was, I had been wanting to do uh, a scripted film. Um, you know, I, I I a producer named Matt Kaplan brought me the script and we worked on it together. And I mean, I was just lucky that he really believed in me. Yeah. Um, the uh, and it was a long process of like trying to get that made and going through the whole studio system and all the revisions and everything and you know it can be somewhat soul crushing, but when you finally get to make it, it's like very cool. But yeah, that for doesn't sure. happen for everybody. So again, yeah. very lucky over here. But the transition to doing Chef's Table is very hard because I had done it every single piece of Jiro, you know, had been micromanaging every single piece of it. Now I'm going to do six of these films in a year right. when it took me a year just to do just to do Giro, um, or actually two years because I was trying to, fig- first had to figure out how to do it and what it was and all that, that whole development process um, was really hard. And that's why I'm so fortunate to have met Brian McGinn and um, Andrew Freed, who is our third executive producer on Chef's Table. And yeah. he showed me, uh, Andrew Freed showed me and Brian, because M- Brian and I both come up from a much more kind of slow-paced film, uh, movie background, and Andrew had worked on Iconoclasts Um, and some of the, you know, the earlier kind of high-end documentary series stuff. And so he showed us how to do it, like how to trust people a little bit more, how to bring in um, story producers, which is a role I had never even heard of before. Yeah. Story producer um, works with the editor, well, actually works with the director in pre-production, then works with the editor to help make sure that we're hitting all the story points Yeah, that they're we mapping need.
0: out what they want to, to yeah, capture. and so
1: that helps accelerate the schedule significantly. Um, and so, yeah, so we, like, kind of started building this crew. Andrew brought in a lot of really great people that we still work with to this day. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's kind of how we learned how to, you know, build a team and, and then to trust that team. And, you know, you know that you have someone really good when you're not, you don't f- want to micromanage it because they're already giving you something that's exactly. great. And yeah. all you have to do is just like steer them a little bit. And then you learn, you know, when, when they're, wa- you're watching something and you just really, it's just not, it's not what we're making and they're making something else. And it, it, when I say they're making something else, like the way that they're leaning in is in a different direction. And so if it takes a lot of work, to get there, then maybe that's not the right person. And so, you know, through trial and error, we found, you know, an incredible team. And then now we have that team working, the people underneath them are becoming just as good, if not better, you know? And so it's just, yeah. like, awesome. We're lucky that we have enough projects to be able to keep everyone going in right. different directions. So yeah. if you're tired of working on Chef's Table, try working on Street Food. Try You can come try working on Earth Keepers. So you can try working on Marvel, like, whatever and it is. Yeah, we're able to find ways to kind of keep our talent and mm-hmm. ke- and give them opportunities to grow.
0: Yeah, Well, it sounds like, I mean, at least season one, of chef's table, like leading up to it had to have been a whirlwind coming from where you were Mm. with a small crew like you're talking about to like working with all these moving parts and pieces. And like even myself as, you know, someone who like still does mini docs and like I do it all completely solo to like Mm. to even get to the next level, which is what you did with Giro just seems like a a jump up as well. Like going from literally one person to like getting multiple people. But when you were going through all these, you know, processes and like trial by fire and things like that, um, How were you able to get guys like Massimo and um, um oh man, I'm trying to, uh, she's out here in LA. Oh, uh, uh, Nikki Nakayama. Yeah, yeah. Nikki Nakayama mm. and Francis Malman and yeah. the, these just incredible chefs with incredible stories. Like, how are you able to reach out to them and, and like with Jiro, like get their trust to like mm-hmm. come out and tell their story?
1: Well, because, uh, you know, within the food world, Jiro is revered and the film Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Was you know we we had enough time had passed that that sh- that that when Jiro Dreams of Sushi came out on Netflix, mm-hmm. it really um it was just being watched by chefs all over the world yeah and also being watched by the people in the kitchen the staff and stuff were watching it and they were showing it to their bosses and so Masimo was aware of Jiro Dreams of Sushi and they knew that you know it was known as like the you know and I say this you know gratefully mm-hmm. that people considered to be like kind of a gold standard of food food content or a a food film, whatever. Uh, And so they were willing to give us, you know, a shot at it. Um, Some of the chefs in season one were not really familiar with it. And so they were a lot harder to recruit. And it's because of that time commitment. It was really hard for chefs to wrap their mind uh, around. And so, um, but... We approached the same—you know, so having the the badge of honor that was Jiro Dreams of Sushi was really able to get us in the door with chefs like Massimo. Nikki Nakayama, I went to—I remember I went to one of the uh, friends and family nights at a restaurant, and, you know, I I, I heard about her from some food blogs and stuff, and Mm -hmm. I was just, like, very excited to, like, try it, and so— when we were setting up our chefs it was like oh I know that she has an awesome story and so um you know I just like called her you know her phone number was the same phone number as the restaurant yeah because her cell phone number was yeah. the, was the listed <laughs> That's so wild thing as the restaurant yeah and, like, she had to
0: change that since, yeah, then uh, she had the sure.
1: out. Uh, so I just called her and I was like hey I'm making this thing Nikki. Yeah. Hey, Mickey how are you yeah you, you know well you know, now now you
0: know, you're, you're getting weeks? submissions <laughs> I'm sure from from you know people all over mm-hmm. chefs, all over PR, trying to reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've also heard you say that you know you guys constantly have you know upwards of like forty or fifty stories that you outline that you could do. Yeah, kind of sitting and waiting in the pipe. Yeah. Do these people know that they're? No. Poten- it's like an actor that's like about to go for a callback. Do they know that they're so close? No. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because you got to keep. We, like
1: I want to manage people's expectations. Yeah, you know? for sure. And yeah. so you know, we we do a lot of research. We um, you know we mix. We, it's like casting you know, we, we mix and match. We have, we got the headshots on the wall. Yeah. We've got, we're trying to put together a, a, an eclectic group, a diverse group, both in ethnicity and in gender. We're looking for, you know, all, we want to go all over the world, you know, so we want to make sure that we're in different, you know, nice geographical kind of space. Um, some of the chefs are, should be famous. Some of the chefs a little less known and some chefs should be a discovery. That's and true. so we're trying to get that mix. Um, and that's the kind of the the, the puzzle
0: you yeah, know, that we exactly. put together
1: every season. Then once we we know what we want, we make sure Netflix is on the same page as us, and only then are we really reaching out um, to the chefs themselves. Um, just because I the worst thing in the world would be to go out to a chef, get them all excited about being on the show, and then yeah, and then for, for sure. some reason not doing them.
0: Yeah, and and so Netflix original series. This is kind of the beginning of that. Right, the first season first of the first documentary
1: Table? series. Yeah, they had yeah. they had. um I think Netflix shows were like lilla Hammer. Yeah, they had uh, yeah, House of, of Cards, Orange is the New Black. Yeah, so this is the first documentary series. First documentary series. series, and uh, I think now since we've just been re- renewed for season seven and eight. Yeah, I saw that. It's the longest. It's going to be the longest running original series on Netflix. Unreal. Yeah. So, like,
0: how do you allocate all this time? And like, once you find out that you're going to need to do seven and eight, like. You know, like where where do you compartmentalize yeah. all these projects?
1: Team, Again, yeah, it all comes right? down to team. And yeah, the 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 journey, the transition from Jiro to Chef's Table, um, to now running multiple shows. Yeah, um, it's, it's 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 the same kind of process, just going on a larger and larger scale, and putting in people that you trust, letting them do their best work, providing them the resources to do their best work, and the guidance when they need it, but not being overbearing when they don't, and um. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we're, we're so lucky to have such a group of talented people that we're able to sustain like this.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: and you know, Brian and I are, and Jason, you know, we're constantly juggling. Um, you know, I have a big whiteboard with all the different projects and I, every day I go down this list of projects and just like check in and see, is there any, anything actionable that they need from me at this point? Are they able to keep going or what, what do they need to keep moving? And, uh, that's what it is. But through the gradual buildup, you know, it's been years and we've been, you know, building this team. It just, it feels very comfortable and it's working. And, uh, you know, and we're also just being very careful in our project selection to make sure that we're only doing things that we're very exciting, excited to be doing. Because when you're doing all these different things, if there's something you're only doing it because you can make some money doing it, but you're not super excited about it creatively, then it becomes such a drag. Right? It becomes so hard Yeah. to spend the time that it's needed on that thing. If you're not passionate
0: about it yeah well it's almost like you know a a band going from you know their first album that they made in their garage to you know getting millions of dollars to make their second and third album a lot of those situations the band doesn't put out a good album that next time the third time right yeah like have you guys had any struggles or have you yourself going from like such a small crew and such just like just different ideas to to these big scale like giant meetings like is do you lose that in in, in the process very
1: hard i mean and and When I watch films, and especially when I watch some of the Marvel comic, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, especially Thor Ragnarok, which is one that I was really obsessed with, it takes an incredible amount of skill to be able to take your idea. And then, remember, we were saying, like, you imagine something, you have a vision for it, yeah, and then you have to execute that and try to match that thing that you have, right? The more layers, the more people. Uh, the higher the stakes, the more money, the harder it is to maintain that pure originality of vision and get it through. And, you know, I'm not sure how successful I was on Lazarus Effect on on doing that because, you know, going from Georgian to Sushi where I have an idea, I literally shoot that idea, I go into the computer, I edit that idea myself, there's Mm -hmm. nobody above me telling me if it's good or not or, like, what I'm allowed to do or not. So it's a very streamlined process from idea to execution. In the case of Lazarus Effect... It's tons and tons oh, of layers, and sure. there's studio, yeah. there's test screenings, there's all this stuff, and being able to push that original idea. Sometimes, like I can't even remember what the original idea was. Yeah. And so it was a big learning process in that sense. And you know, I'm 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 proud of the film. Um. And you know, it you know it was pretty successful. Um. Financially, but um, it's a muscle that was that was not my strongest muscle, which was being able to push through that original idea through to the finish line to make sure it gets on the screen. Um. Chef's Table, we've had more success with it. Mustang was, was a challenge, you Mm -hmm. know, didn't have a clear character. And so it was just hard to like get all those feelings that, you know, Ford wanted about Mustang that we wanted about, you know, the the idea of like a car and innovation and creativity and and all that stuff and, 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 and bravery and (laughs) in the corporation. It's funny because we found that the story of Lee Iacocca and Dave became about directors trying to push their vision through a bureaucracy in the same that we, the way that we were doing when we were trying to make the film. And so, you know, and, and so you learn from those experiences. Yeah. Um, but it really comes down to team and communication. And so a director without the ability to communicate, you know, you can have the be the most talented, have the best ideas, you're doing it on your own. If you're not able to communicate it to a crew, you're not able to communicate it to your producers – to distributors being able to get the—the the movie's not going to get out there, or it's not going to get made. And so that communication is so important, and then having people that you trust to communicate to. And so those elements, those are things that you build over time, and that's how you're able to make great films. And so bringing it back to Thor Ragnarok, that movie is so funny— and, like, fresh and original. Even in action scenes, you're, like, laughing because he's able to articulate the moments and get them through the whole machine and mechanics of the screenwriting and all the stuff and everything. And it's also a testament to Kevin Feige, who I think is an incredible producer, in hiring Taika in the first place. um, You know, Taika Waititi's background was uh, Flight of the Conchords, What We Do in the Shadows, kind of, like, small um, comedic Mm -hmm. pieces. Yeah. And then he jumps to doing, like, what, I I don't know, God knows how much they spend on these movies. His originality of vision still breaks through. Yeah, like looseness,
0: and, almost like there's a there's yeah. A, even yeah.
1: through all the VFX and everything, it just yeah. feels like these are characters like riffing on you know exactly. It's like they, yeah, they, it's it's funny and it's 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 heartfelt. It's like real. Yeah. And so that's kind of amazing. And so I really admire his work on that. And uh, yeah, so that's what I aspire to do is to be able to like make it feel effortless. Yeah. You know, even yeah. with all the machinery and stuff that it takes to make a giant fantasy movie
0: mm-hmm. and almost making a film look like a documentary, right? It kind yeah. of in a just weird it, nutshell no, way. They it feel real. You yeah, know? Just, and it, does, it doesn't feel like so we're real.
1: on, they're not standing on green screen sets exactly. and just saying lines yeah. or doing choreography. Mm-hmm. Like, these are characters just doing their thing. Yeah, And, uh, and that's really hard to, it, it, it requires a real kind of, uh, confidence at easiness, but also the ability to communicate to the producers and like get that vision through. So we all get it. We're all on the same page and we're all making the same thing. And that's a real muscle that takes practice. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. Cause sometimes when even a few of those parts aren't working together, I mean, you know, we've seen movies that haven't worked out and sometimes it's nothing but just circumstance. Right. And like maybe even timing. But there's all these moving parts that you like. Everyone has to be on that same page as you know. Mm-hmm. You know better than anybody. Yeah. So like you being as young as you are, thirty five right now, right, yeah. Yeah. which is absolutely crazy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, you have a long like a long time. You have a lot more to 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 mm. do in mm-hmm. this in this field. Yeah. Do you see any any course you know taking you further in like documentary style? Uh, uh, films or, or you know regular films and making movies. Like, do you want to go in any path more than the other, or do you want to jump between the two?
1: I think it's going to be jumping around. Yeah. I think it's like you know I, I want to make things that I want to watch. Yeah, and you know that's what we're doing in the nonfiction space. You know, and we're we aspire to do that in the scripted space as well because right. they're not they're not that different. It's like it, we're just trying to tell like a really cool compelling story in a way that's like entertaining and fun and it means something and it hopefully has some kind of like positive effect or inspirational impact on the people who are watching it Mm -hmm. you know so i really admire like i'd love to make uh movies like taika waititi is doing right now um i i really admire him um you know i just watched uh midsummer last night the new uh movie by ari aster which is like a terrifying movie um but also very funny and like it has a lot of like meaning in it and uh really original and incredible and so it's like you know i just want to make cool things that i want to watch i don't have like a specific path in mind yeah but you know uh you know we're gonna build this company and we're hopefully going to be able to make these films through this company as well supper club and so we're just gonna have to see and i think that not imposing a timeline or a standard it's like you know when you're younger like oh by the time I'm 30 I want to be directing Harry Potter yeah, like these yeah. things are not you know impose everybody has their own path and it takes their own amount of time to do it right and just I'm just trying to do what's right for me and you know what's right for our team and everything yeah and like but when you were 25 we'll what did happens.
0: you imagine that you know you? when would I, be was college, here, yeah, I was in college yeah I was like oh, I'm gonna
1: go to USC and then I'll be doing uh yeah I'll, maybe I'll reboot Star Wars by like 24 years old like that's yeah. the kind of like crazy ambition that yeah. you get uh, yeah, that yeah. you have in film school and then you know you you just realize the more, actually, there's this great line in Jiro Dreams of Sushi that really was like, yeah, I was like, yep, that's, that's right. And, uh, it's this fish, fishmonger. He's the eel guy, mm-hmm. sells eel.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: he's like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And every time you think you've mastered it, you realize the closer you get to, to mastering it, you, the more of a distance you realize, the further the way that there is to go. Right. You know? Yeah. And, um, that's what it's like. That's what it feels like for me. The better I get, the more I realize, wow, I have so much to learn. There's so much that I can be improving on. Yeah. Um. And so it's just like a the, the process of of trial and error continues.
0: Yeah. Well, man, I really appreciate you giving me the time. Of so season season seven and eight. There's no release date for seven yet, right? No, we
1: don't have release dates yet. We're but they're going to come out at some point. Yeah. You know, for we're, sure. we're 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 casting them right now. Yeah. Um. We're looking at doing more street foods um we're very excited about our disney plus partnership yeah definitely which is coming out so yeah. you know i don't have any release dates for anything but i can say that you know i really hope that people uh, continue to watch chef's table on on netflix uh, a lot of people may have missed Chef's Table France, which is a spin-off uh, series of Chef's Table I it was great. four episodes in France called yeah. Chef's Table France. It's a separate show from Chef's Table, also on Netflix. And then we have uh Street Food, um, which uh, you know, if you enjo- even if you don't like Chef's Table, mm-hmm. try Street Food it's out great. because that's And it's all Southeast thing. Asia. Yeah, yeah first yeah. season's all yeah. in Southeast Asia. Singapore
0: and, and Philippines mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 super good. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. That'll do it, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out and checking out that episode with David. You can find David at This Is David Gelb on Instagram or on Twitter at This Is David Gelb. You can see Jiro Dreams of Sushi, Chef's Table, and Street Food on Netflix right now. But yeah, thanks again, guys. Hope you enjoyed it, and you can reach out to us at Darkroom. You can reach out to me at Dane Diener, and we will see you guys next week.